I'm turning this morning to the 17th chapter of Matthew, Matthew chapter 17, and we'll be looking at just two verses this morning. Matthew 17, verses 22 and 23. Verse 22, And while they abode in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men, and they shall kill him, and the third day he shall be raised again. And they were exceeding sorry. Our title or subject this morning is simply Christ foretells his sufferings. Christ foretells his sufferings. Uh, Jesus here is again referring to what is just over the horizon. He's talking about his own deliverance into the hands of evil and wicked men. He's speaking of not only the deliverance into those wicked hands, but he's speaking of betrayal. He's speaking of not only suffering, but being killed. But he's also speaking of being raised again. In two verses, Jesus covers the gamut of really the experience of humanity. He's going to die, but there is going to be a resurrection. Of course, he's speaking of his own resurrection. And this is not the first time that he spoke on this subject, but he is beginning to now more clearly tell them what they are facing. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, we remember it says, From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem. We remember that. He said, It's not an option. I must go unto Jerusalem. He was fulfilling the scripture and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. It's not the first time he spoke of it. But the disciples are still finding it very hard to accept these hard sayings. They're having a difficult time rationalizing and reasoning in their mind, what is he talking about? They're finding it difficult. So Jesus, again, of course, in only what he would know, sees necessary to repeat it again. And he speaks the same thing. Now, there are some things in the scripture that God speaks once. He declares it. He says, this is so. And then there are other things that are repeated. And Jesus, speaking of his suffering, his passion, his death, his burial, his resurrection, he spoke it repeatedly. I think there's a lesson to be learned there. But there are things that Jesus must repeat. And yet, even though he repeats things, sometimes people do not perceive it. Uh, it is very possible uh, you could hear something today that you have heard repeatedly. You've heard it over and over again. And still would have difficulty perceiving what the meaning is. These disciples were much in that scenario. So as we read our scripture, and in our scripture reading in Mark 9, I know that was lengthy. But in verses 30 and 32, speaking of the same event, it says, And they departed thence and passed through Galilee, and he would not that any man should know it. For he taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, 
and they shall kill him, and after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. Now listen to what Mark added to that reading. But they understood not this saying. And it was hid from them that they perceived it not. And they feared to ask him of that saying. So Mark elaborates more and says not only did they hear it, they didn't understand what he said because it was hidden, they didn't perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him what it meant. Matthew doesn't give us that. Mark tends to be the very detailed writer. He gives us a lot of details. Now, we also know that in Mark 4.33, Jesus had said that to his disciples and had taught them on numerous occasions that he would teach them as they were able to bear it. Mark 4.33. Again, he tells them in John 16.12 that he had yet many things to say to them, but they could not bear them at that time. So Christ, at times, conceals these doctrines. He keeps these things to himself. The doctrine of his suffering, the doctrine of his passion, his resurrection from the dead. Until he confirms some things in them, he doesn't reveal it to them. Now, something confirming did happen recently in our study that now Jesus is turning up the amount of times he says it. You see, that Mount of Transfiguration was not just so that we saw this, this uh, uh, shining white light and white raiment. It declared very clearly as the Father spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved Son, hear Him. It was declaring the power that is in Jesus Christ, but also that this is the Messiah. The confirmation is now very clear that this is the Son of God. Now, we also got to keep in mind that the prevailing established opinion of the day that possessed most of the Jews was that the Messiah was going to be a temporary or a temporal prince, rather. It was only temporal. That he would establish his kingdom, he would deliver the Jews from the service under the Roman Empire, and that this Messiah was going to deliver them temporally. It goes without saying that the disciples also had some of that influence in their minds. Yet Jesus is continuing to explain to them why he came, what's going to happen, what must happen. So before they fully understand this, <clears throat> they struggle to understand what he is saying. In Luke 9, verses 44 through 45, again, a parallel passage, he said unto them, let these sayings sink down into your ears. For the Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men, but they understood not this saying, and it was hid from them that they perceived not, and they feared to ask him. So these things are going together. You, you put Mark and you put Luke together, you read both of those verses as we read them, and there is something about that they are not fully getting. Luke 9.31 does tell us that when Moses and Elijah were discussing what they were talking about, it says they were talking about Jesus' suffering. But what's even more interesting to me is that it's only Matthew's account that actually uses this expression. And they were exceeding sorry. Mark's account doesn't do it. 
Luke's account doesn't do it. But taking what Mark says and what Luke says about not understanding, what are they sorry about? Are they sorry that he's going to go through this? Or are they sorry they don't understand? Based on Mark and Luke, I would submit to you that they're more sorry they don't understand. And they were afraid to ask. Possibly, maybe they were sorry they couldn't understand it. They couldn't reconcile in their minds to the idea of the Messiah the way that the general consensus of the Jews was. But it seems difficult for us to make the assumption that they were sorry for what Christ said about his suffering because the scripture again says in Mark and Luke that they didn't understand it. Thinking that Christ had not spoken plainly of something that's a matter of fact. Jesus wasn't speaking opinion here. He was speaking, as a matter of fact, this is what's going to happen. And he gives details as to what's going to happen. And then he even gives a detail as to when he's going to raise from the grave. He gives specifics on the third day. But yet we still see the disciples struggle with this. So what is Jesus doing? He continues to give them these hard sayings. He's preparing his disciples' minds. He's preparing their minds for the offense that the cross is going to be. Remember, the disciples do not have a cross, a middle cross and two crosses on either side. They don't see Mount Calvary yet. They don't see two thieves on either side and Jesus hanging in the middle. He's preparing them for the offense that this death is going to cause. Because to die on a cross spoke of the wickedness of the person who's dying on that cross. Jesus is intentionally later hung on that center cross as being the worst of the worst. And yet he's the only one that was without sin hanging on one of those three. He's preparing his disciples for what they're going to hear, what's going to happen to them. And by way of an application for us this morning, it certainly ought to prepare our minds. Now again, we're not looking to the cross because the cross has already taken place. Jesus has already fulfilled all of these. He's already raised from the grave. He's already been seen by many witnesses. He's already ascended back to the right hand of the Father where he lives to make intercession. But we have to be prepared for the offense that the cross creates. The cross and the gospel of Jesus Christ will never be a popular doctrine. It will never be an acceptable doctrine in our society. You are never going to see where the world just says, we love the gospel. But the cross and its message and its Messiah has not changed, nor will it ever change. Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God. As he prepared his disciples for the offense the gospel and the cross would create, he teaches them and he teaches us and there's really, I noticed this this morning, and it's nothing significant. You're going to say, that's what's the big deal? But it, 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 it just reminded me of something. If you look at those two verses, there are three shalls. There is the shall be in verse 22. There's the shall kill him in verse 23. And shall be raised again. Jesus foretells his sufferings and he uses three shalls. <laughs> Three not might be, three what will be. Three things that have not only will be, but three things that have been prophesied to be so that it cannot be changed. 
These are as powerful as must be. So what did he foretell? First heading this morning, what he foretold concerning himself is that he shall be betrayed. You'll notice the Son of Man, the first thing he says, he shall be betrayed. Now we know that betrayal comes from the prophesied Judas Iscariot. Jesus perfectly knew the entire time who Judas was. He knew all things that would come to pass. He knew all things that Jesus he would come unto him. Yet he still undertook the work of the atoning work of redemption, being that propitiation we talked about at 10 o'clock this morning. He understood the will of the Father. He understood that all that the Father had given to him would come unto him. And this greatly commends the fact that he knew about his betrayal by Judas, that he still saw the cross. And he still willfully and voluntarily went to that cross and demonstrated his love for his people. Imagine knowing you were going to be betrayed by someone in this room and withholding that and carrying out the work, even though that their betrayal was going to lead to your death. Jesus says nothing and does not point out Judas, but he's going to be betrayed. Did that happen just as he said? Absolutely it did. He was betrayed. That's the first thing he tells us. He shall, tells them they'll be betrayed, and notice he'll be betrayed into the hands of men. Now, these are not just ordinary men, and it's not given just to identify the difference between male and female. He is delivered up unto or understood that this is part of the Father's delivering him up in, according to the determined counsel, according to foreknowledge. In Acts chapter number 4, this will be familiar to many of us. Acts chapter number 4. Notice with me, let's begin reading there in verse 22. It says, For the man was above forty years old, on whom this miracle of healing was showed. And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. Now I want you to notice, he gives a list of people who by the foreknowledge and the predetermination of God were going to do as it was set out to do. Verse 28, For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thine hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child, Jesus. So what's happening to Jesus being delivered into these hands of men is according to the foreknowledge and determined counsel 
of God. Now, of course, we render that began, that began by Judas being the initial betrayal, betrayer. But he wasn't just betrayed by Jesus, or by Judas, rather. He was betrayed by every hand who took him. Jews and Gentiles alike. He came unto his own, John 1 says, and his own received him not. The Jews who should have accepted him, they also had wicked hands. They betrayed him. They were the hands of these men. Blood on their hands. Sinners. Now you and I were not there. But we had blood on our hands. Covered in sin. God be merciful unto me. A sinner. Jesus Christ is betrayed by the very people in which should have received him. To hear the word of God, to hear the claims of the gospel, and to hear it preached, and to just dismiss it, is to simply betray the love of Christ. To ignore the command to repent and believe. The promise of all who come unto him, he will in no wise cast out. See, sometimes we like to take ourselves out of a narrative because we weren't there. We wouldn't have betrayed him. Many of the same hands that shouted Hosanna, waved the palm leaves, were the same hands and the same voices who cried out, crucify him. See, the betrayal, of course, Judas is identified, but he was betrayed by every hand that took him. Those that should have received him. Those who should have expected him because the scripture said, here's how your Messiah will appear. Every evidence in the world was there for them to see this is the Messiah. Those that just by nature should have wanted to receive him as Savior. It was fair, humanly speaking, again, speaking as a manner of man, it would have been fair that Jesus would have expected, well, these should be people that should honor me. These should be people that lift up their voice in praise, and yet, when that crucifixion day comes, there are a lot more hands who are betraying hands than hands that are acknowledging him. He foretells he shall be betrayed. Remember, this has already happened. But this is what he's telling his disciples. Secondly, what he foretold or foretells concerning his death. You can't put it any more direct than this. They shall kill him. Now, it's important that we differentiate between die and kill. You say, that's a technicality. No, that matters greatly. Die has a suggestion that could be of various causes. It could, natural causes, it could be an accident. He does not say they shall die him, or he'll die of natural causes. They, the hands that betrayed him, shall what? Kill him. 
Kill means to take the life of another. Thou shalt not kill. Now again, we understand that Jesus Christ on the cross, he dismisses his spirit. And he says, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. He didn't die a moment too soon or a moment late. But in the human terms, this is the way man would see it. He's being killed. Now, if you were there during that crucifixion, that's what you would have seen. You would have seen a person is being executed, being put to death. Remember, I've, I've, we've said this often. The beauty of the cross was the reality of what it represents for us, but it's an execution instrument. That cross behind me is an, is an, an instrument of execution that was reserved for only the worst of society. Yet Jesus hangs on one of those. As the worst. Think about that for a moment. As the worst of society. And yet, what had he done wrong? He was sinless. He had done absolutely nothing wrong. It was impossible for him to sin. Yet society said, crucify him. Why? Because he claims equality with God. He's a blasphemer. That was the charge. Now we could get into all that led to his being killed. The phony and sham trials. You could spend hours just looking at everything that was wrong. But don't forget what Acts 4 said. By the predetermined counsel of God, he would be delivered into the hands of these wicked people. Everything is going according to the predetermined counsel of God. Jesus is not going to be taken by surprise. He's not going to be killed by surprise. But they'll kill him. And folks, I don't, I don't try to play in the emotional field, okay? But, I, but what we need to understand is try to understand the rage that society was feeling when they took Jesus in. We see in our society today a mob mentality that is unbelievable. We see rage being carried out in ways that are unspeakable. A 13 or 15 year old boy just beat the daylights out of a nine year old girl on a school bus. I have... I don't know if I've ever seen such rage in a person without any remorse at all. And yet, I want you to understand something. The rage that people would have felt to put Jesus on that cross was a bloodthirsty rage like you cannot even begin to imagine. This idea that everybody was walking around calmly waiting for court results and waiting, hey, let's put him on the cross. No, this was a bloodthirsty rage that was basically this. The only way you're going to satisfy us is if you kill him and you kill him in the worst possible way and treat him for what we think he is, the worst of society. Which means the only thing that they wanted and would, and would settle for is blood. Now let me tell you the beauty of that. The blood of Christ was the only thing that was going to satisfy a holy God and was the only thing that was going to redeem your soul. 
the rage, Psalm 2, why do the heathen rage? Sinners without Christ rage. You say, I'm here today and I'm, I'm unsaved. I'm not raging. You actually are raging. Sin is raging in you and without a repentance and a turning from your sin and believing in Christ alone, you will die in that sin. And you will suffer eternal torment as we read even in our Scripture reading. But it won't be because you didn't hear. It'll be because you said no. This rage was only satisfied by His blood. His precious blood to you and I. They thirsted after blood thinking they had taken care of the problem. Let's kill Him. Yet nothing less than, God, than Christ's blood would satisfy God's justice. If Christ was to be a sacrifice of atonement, we know this biblically, he had to die. More specifically, be killed. Without the shedding of blood, there is what? No remission of sin. If Jesus Christ doesn't bleed, doesn't go to the cross and die, there is no remission for your sin. And you are dead in your trespasses and sins and you are subject to the full wrath of God. The full wrath of God was poured out upon His Son, He who knew no sin but became sin for us. And yet the beauty that we see in this passage is that Jesus Christ is killed and if you are one of His today, you cannot help but almost just want to prostrate yourself and say, thank you, Lord, that you would die for a sinner like me. Undeserving, unworthy, of any of your blood to be shed. And it has nothing to do with my love for you. You love me first. Herein is love. Period. He loved you first. Yet, these persecutors, these murderers want nothing more than to take him. Number three, what he foretold concerning his resurrection. Notice these glorious words. And the third day, very specific. Now whether or not they fully understood what that third day means, he gave them very specific time period. The third day, which taken into account the context, after he's killed, he shall be, there's the third shall be, raised again. Not might be, not if things go well. He shall be raised again. Yet when he speaks of his death, he also speaks of his resurrection. I believe, again, I'm going to say that because I don't want to speak in ignorance and, and you, you might say, oh, I know, a, I know a place where it does this. I believe that this is he does not speak of his death anymore without speaking about the resurrection. Now, even if he doesn't, we do see it here. But he's now connecting for the comfort of his disciples that yes, these things shall be, these things must be, but I want you to comfort yourself with this reality. Is that he will be raised from the grave. 
Hebrews talks about that it is the joy that's set before him. That's a good Bible study for you. Study Hebrews when it talks about Jesus going to the cross and the joy that's set before him. Humanly speaking, there's no joy in a cross. It was, it was the picture of wickedness. Yet the joy that was set before him, the joy of the cross, the joy of redemption of his people that the Father had given him, it goes on to says, consider him. Folks, hear me this morning. Consider Christ. Consider him. Consider what he's done. Consider his blood that was shed. He endured the cross, took upon himself the shameful death of the cross, and was paying the sin debt of his people. Now that was not only an encouragement to his disciples, but remember, again, speaking in the manner of men, it must have been an encouragement to Jesus himself. Why? I mean, think about even later when he's in the garden. Father, if it be possible that this cup may pass from me. When Christ speaks of his raising again, he makes mention of the exact time, the third day on which he should rise. And yet how many people after he rose from the grave on that third day still didn't recognize him or failed to believe a person living in this generation right now, you have more evidence and more proof that Jesus Christ raised, raised from the grave than ever before. We are held accountable because we have a completed copy of God's word. There's nothing missing. You say, I want to go on an archaeological dig and I want to find more scripture. I want to find more words. I want to find more documents. There aren't any others. The completed word of God is right in front of you. And yet, it reveals everything that has happened and everything that was prophesied that's supposed to happen to this point has happened exactly the way the Bible said it would. No other publication in the world has that track record. The news doesn't. The news doesn't even have yesterday right. Yet, we'll believe anything we read on social media, will we believe anything we hear on television, if you still watch television, every YouTube video we see, every Facebook post, we'll believe that, but we'll leave here as skeptics saying, ah, that Jesus stuff, that's not for me. And yet, there is nothing that has been fulfilled so perfectly and precisely than the determined foreknowledge of God. Jesus rose from that grave. It would also, again, speak to the disciples that if they did understand he's dying, it had to have been some kind of an encouragement that he's not going to be gone long because it's three days. And he would return to them. Did he return to them? He absolutely did. Did he show himself to them? He absolutely did. Was he seen by many witnesses? He absolutely was. He was fulfilling the prophecies regarding himself. Jesus Christ is clearly the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. 
I repeat it over and over again, and yet today, many Jews who are still blinded will deny that that's Jesus being mentioned. They're still looking. And there is not another Messiah coming because there's only one. You're only going to be confronted with one Jesus Christ. You're only going to be confronted with one gospel. There are not many gospels. The Apostle Paul himself in Galatians warned against another gospel. If you have a gospel that is talking anything about that's, that's plus, it's Jesus plus, or Jesus minus, that's another gospel. If you hear something that's saying it depends upon what you do, that's another gospel. If it's dependent upon what you give, that's another gospel. Although the disciples don't fully understand everything that you and I are talking about today, remember that. You understand more at this point in time than those disciples had evidence in front of them to believe. And yet, how quick are we in our theological pride that we say, what's the matter with these guys? You'd have been just like them. We, we struggle to put ourselves in these places because we see and know so much. But remember, he's foretelling. He's not forthtelling. There is a difference. When I preach the word, I'm telling you in almost every case something's happened before. Proclaiming things that already happened. He's telling them things that are still to come. So fourthly, how did the disciples receive this according to Matthew? Again, it's interesting. It just says they were exceeding sorry. The narrative in Matthew does not elaborate any further. It moves on. And when they were come to Capernaum, if you were reading a book and that's what happened, you would say, where's the rest? What are they sorry about? That's why we had to read Mark and Luke to find out what they were sorry about. And the conclusion very much when you read those is that they understood not what he was saying and they were afraid to ask. Now you wouldn't know that if you don't compare Scripture with Scripture. Again, I warned us at 10 o'clock, don't isolate the Bible and just try to say, here's what this means. That's how false doctrine starts and that's how cults start. But Jesus never told a contradictory story. Now, here's something that you'll find interesting. The critic, the textual, unredeemed, unsaved, unconverted, unregenerate critic says, you see, the Bible's filled with contradictions. It's not a contradiction. Because when you take the story as a whole, there are no contradictions. Typically, people don't pick up a book and read one chapter and then say, I know what the book's about. Now, some of us, not trying to be funny, but it's going to come across that way. Some of us tried to get through school that way. And they had this little invention called Cliff's Notes. Remember those? It was supposed to keep you from having, you're supposed to use it as a supplement to reading it. Well, guess what this guy did? Just read the Cliff's Notes. Nailed me every time. You know why? Because the teachers are smarter than us. They know exactly what the cliff notes are. You're not going to pass. But why would we look at death and say, I, I, I can take it all and say, this is a contradiction. No, you've got to read the whole. 
What were they sorry about? If they were sorry that he should be betrayed into the hands of these angry men, remember, based upon what we saw that was the overall consensus, maybe they were afraid that another nation would come. If he doesn't establish his temporal kingdom, then then what's going to happen? Maybe they were sorry about that. Maybe there was some sorrow that he's going to die. They don't understand all the inner workings of this death. Maybe when they hear the word kill, they understood, well, that means it's not natural. But with everything that Mark and Luke say, it is almost as if they still are not understanding the fullness of what's getting ready to take place. I take the position biblically that I think they're exceeding sorry because they still did not understand fully what's happening. Even though you and I are reading today, and if you have any sort of understanding today, it's not because of the preacher, it's because the Holy Spirit is discerning and giving you exactly to understand what's being said. It's not me. Any man in this church could stand up and preach the same text and he might explain it better, he may outline it better, but our understanding comes from the Spirit of God, not from the intellect of man. So you could still be sitting here today and you say, I don't understand what's happening here. They were exceeding sorry because they did not understand fully yet. Now what's interesting, and I noticed this again today, is again, I don't, I don't see it in either one of the accounts. Remember when Jesus mentioned it the first time? Peter spoke up. This time he doesn't. He doesn't dare say anything against it. The first time he said, Lord, this can't be so. And Jesus rebuked him and said, get thee behind me, Satan. That wasn't too many weeks ago. But you don't see Peter saying, Lord, let this not be so. Just Matthew says they were exceeding sorry. Maybe he remembered being rebuked for it. Scripture doesn't say. It's not, it's not make it say what it doesn't say. But yet he says nothing. Well, we know Jesus isn't done with the disciples. He's not done with telling them these hard sayings. And he continues to teach them. But my question for us today, who know Christ, first of all, how should we receive these things? How should we receive Christ foretelling his sufferings? If, if this has already happened, how should we receive them? Well, think about it again. Christ fully knew everything that would befall him, everything that would overtake him, yet he still did it. Folks, your conversion, your standing in Christ as a child of God today ought to be growing sweeter and sweeter every single day. You should be growing closer to Him. You should love the Lord Jesus Christ more than you did before. You should, as we talked about this morning, you should love his commandments and you should want to walk in obedience to him, not try to find ways to get out of obeying God like a child tries to get out of, the, out of doing what their parents have asked them to do. The fact that Jesus Christ, knowing what he knew, and again, I know we can get into all the theology of this, and you can't run from the theology of it. 
But the very fact that God was mindful of you, knowing you the way you know yourself, and only you, other than God, know yourself the way you do. He saved you, if you're a child of God today. He saved you knowing the sin you've already committed, the sin you're going to commit today, the sin you're going to commit 25 years from now. He died for you and took that sin upon himself, not because you were worthy. He saved you for his glory. He didn't just save you to keep you from hell. He saved you for his glory. Friends, think on that. Think on what Christ, consider him. Those that say the child of God doesn't need to hear the gospel. Oh, we need to hear it over and over again because every time we hear it, it grows more precious than the last time we heard it, or at least it should. But what about the person or persons that are here today who don't know about the preciousness of what Christ has done. They don't think about what he endured, what the cross was about. The mercy that God is extending to you to even allow you to hear the saving message of Jesus Christ. Again, not emotionally stir you up, but to think a wicked sinner like me and he's calling me. There's a salvation to be had. There's a redemption from this. And whosoever shall call. Again, theology, we can talk about the whosoever. But if you have a desire to come to Christ today, there is absolutely positively nobody but you keeping you from coming to him. Because that desire is coming from God himself. You are being drawn. All that the Father gives will come to me. No man can come to the Father but by me. So listen, I've been in churches all my life and I've never heard a gospel like this. Then you've never heard the gospel. What you've heard is man's philosophy. You've heard what man wants. And you have heard clearly the depravity of man that would suggest even in the, the smallest amount that you are worthy in and of yourselves to stand before a holy God. Pride, pride, pride. It's the pinnacle of arrogance to say, I don't need Christ to stand before God. You're going to stand before God. You're either going to stand before God with Christ or without Him. Every person in this room is going to give an account to God. And if you stand there without Christ, He will have no other choice than to say, depart from me, I never knew you. And among those departures will also be false professors who will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? And he'll still say, depart from me. I never knew you. There are people out there today that are professing to know Christ. There are preachers standing in pulpits. 
There are evangelists who are traveling, who are saying, Lord, Lord, and he says, I don't even know you. And again, we don't say that with some kind of spiritual pride. It ought to, again, it ought to break our hearts to even consider anyone in this room spending an eternity in hell. Any person for that matter. Because had it not been for His love toward us, we would be in exactly the same position. And yet the Bible simply says, and does not invite you, it is a command. This is not something for you to take home and chew on, think about, meditate on, consider, compare to something else. The command is repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Repent. There's no gospel without repentance. No matter what the modern church wants you to believe, there's no gospel without repentance. And we believe that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. He is the propitiation. Not one of many ways. The unbeliever says there's many roads to God. I'll take the one most convenient. There's only one way. It's through Jesus Christ. Every other road is a man-made road that will leave you to everlasting hellfire. But through Christ, there's salvation. Through Christ, not only is there salvation, but there's comfort. Every believer here today can leave comforted that I know I'm in Christ. Because I love Him. I want to obey Him. I want to follow Him. May God help us whether we're here today still dead in our trespasses and sins, or we can say here today that I know I'm in Christ. May the Lord help us in these things. Let's pray together.